If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Please note that some listeners may find the content of this show upsetting. Due to the often sensitive nature of discussion, this show is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, on Christmas Eve, I talk to the author, Guardian contributor and ex-prison resident, Erwin James, about Christmas behind bars. What I've learned through my life experience in prison and everything is that very few people have these happy, ecstatic lives. Everybody's got issues, everybody's got problems. What we try to do at Christmas is try to make the best of what we have at Christmas. And I've got to tell you this, people in prison mostly try to do the same. My name is Owen James. My full name is Owen James Monaghan, but I've been writing as Owen James since 1998. I'm a Guardian contributor and I'm the editor-in-chief of Inside Time, the national newspaper for people in prison, the uh, only newspaper of its kind in the world. I'm really proud of that. I'm really pleased to have Owen James on the pod today. Owen James was convicted of a double murder and he's here to talk to me today about what Christmas is like in prison. He served 20 years. Owen and I met each other years ago now when I worked in the House of Lords. He was the first person in this country really to write an article about me, that an article that I wanted in the paper. He was the first person to write about my prison work. So I'm so pleased and happy to see you again. And thank you for coming along to talk about Christmas in prison with me. Fantastic. Oh, listen, I'm amazed that I'm still here and uh, pleased that you want me to speak to you. It's funny because we clearly had um, an equal fascination with each other's backgrounds for, well, for pretty different reasons. It, it sounds like it, but but what I think what we did between us, there was a sort of respect for each other's circumstances. And I think that's what impressed me most about you. And I'm not going to compliment you any more than no, that. No, don't. This is about you today. I'm, I mean. I, I'm not, no, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about how we, our society thinks about prison, prisoners, murderers, rapists, beautifiers, 
drug dealers, burglars, muggers, you know, we label these people. Who are these criminals? Mm. Who are these who are these people that we label the worst of the worst? That we 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 warehouse away in places that and we don't want to think about these people. We we just want to condemn them. You know, mm. you read the headlines. We spoke just before coming in here about the old man last week who was in the papers who'd been bashed and beaten, ninety eight year old war veteran. And I, I can't tell you how angry I was to read that. I think I think you'd be amazed society and people would be amazed at how angry people who commit crime are when they see the impact of criminal activity on, on vulnerable people there is a sense sometimes when when you have the criminal mindset when you commit crimes i mean i was my first crime was when i was 10 years old and my first conviction at 11. you broke into a sweet shop didn't you i did i did i did I, I, you know i'm ashamed of that now i'm not going to tell you that i didn't know the difference between right and wrong i did Mm. It was Mr. Mann's grocery shop that I broke into. I didn't even consider that Mr. Mann had worked so hard to build his shop up, to feed his family, to look after his family. And, you know, when, when you're in the criminal mindset, whether it's a kid at 11, 10, or a, a grown adult in mid-20s like I was when I've gone into serious crime, when you're in the criminal mindset, it's such a selfish, horrible, vile place to be. And you don't think about the victims. You don't think about the impacts mm -hmm. of the crime. All you, all you think about is your own gratification. You knocked up 53 convictions from the time of breaking into the sweet shop, which then culminated in the double murder. Am I correct? That was conviction number 54. The, right. The murder convictions, the old Bailey. Yes. Yeah. And you served 20 years. So today I want to sort of paint a picture or to get you to paint a picture really of what Christmas is like in prisons. You talk about these murderers, rapists, what is it like to spend Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day in that environment surrounded by those types of people? It's something that we don't hear about or read about. So I'd be interested to know what it was like for you, maybe starting from the first Christmas you actually spent in prison. So I was convicted in 1984 of two murders with another man. Two of us were both convicted. Um, we both got life imprisonment. We were both involved in these crimes. I never talk about the details of the crimes because that's contentious. He blamed me. I said I was innocent. Somewhere in between is the truth. But the fact is I was there. I had responsibility. I deserved to go to prison for life. Okay, so I didn't expect anything more than that. And how old were you when you were when you were sent to Wandsworth? I never really kept count of birthdays until I was in jail, funnily enough, you know. I didn't really think about birthdays. But anyway, mid-20s. And I went in there without any expectations or any sense that I was going to live again at all. You know, I was finished. You know, I, I wasn't educated. I didn't. I couldn't speak. Uh, the only good thing was I could read my six books a week from the prison library. They kept me alive that year. But I say, you talking about the first Christmas in the first Christmas in jail. The funny thing is, Christmas Eve, I'd heard noises above me. The night watchman walks around in slippers at, at nighttime in jails, and then I heard heard sort of pat 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 above me. And I heard whispers and keys jangling and door opening. I thought, I thought somebody was getting shipped out. And in the morning, in the, in, I didn't know then that you got cornflakes once a year uh, for Christmas. The big long queue and they're all joking about this kid who disappeared from the, uh, the landing above me. I'll have his cornflakes to go, I'll have his mop, I'll have his bucket because he's a cleaner. I found out he'd hanged himself. And I was really, I, I said I was really upset, really shocked. But didn't know how to express that because I was as I was the same as everybody else. I was defensive. You know, people people outside think that prisoners, they're all some sort of gang of mates together, a big sort of cohort of people with 
the same values and the same code and they said that couldn't be further from the truth this is this is a distortion by the media by the popular media by politicians what we do in this country in any country basically we we cram thousands of relatively dysfunctional people into these places we call prisons most of them deserve to be there you physically harm somebody you go to jail I'm, i've got no issue with that but we cram these people into prisons and we call them the prisoners and then we have a collective view about these people the murderers the rapists the pedophiles the burglars we label them with all the headlines sort of grabbing labels um, and we think we know who they are we don't we really don't you know can you describe um christmas day you wake up in your cell are you sharing a cell and can you sort of talk us through what christmas day looks like well that was that christmas day was was pretty crap if i'm honest it was you know i went back to my cell i didn't have the courage or the character to say hang on boys this young kid doing seven years you know what about his family where well, i didn't have that sort of courage so when i was banged up with my cornflakes i um you know it made me th- it made me think about i thought you callous bastards but actually they, they weren't being callous they it's this, it's, you cram relatively dysfunctional strangers together in a confined space and people behave defensively. That is, that, that's not who they are. It really isn't who they are. So your Christmas breakfast is cornflakes. It's cornflakes. The guy above you has hung himself. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty depressing. It is pretty and depressing. And then what, what do you do for the morning? Well, you eat your cornflakes because, Christ, you know, whatever's happened, you've got cornflakes. So you eat those, you you, you 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 wait for the door to the door was open like three times a day in Wandsworth. You had the conflicts on a tray, on a steel tray, not in a bowl and you know, you know, and then me, I'm I was in shock. I'm not gonna lie to you, I was in shock. I didn't realise then just how prevalent suicide in prison is. But anyway, that day, you know, the door's banged up. I've got flaky paint on the wall, I've got three sets of bars on the cell window. I've got a bed, a chair, a table, a bucket for my toilet under the, under the bed. Gloom struggled to get into that room through those three sets of bars. But, you know, I deserve to be there. Edwina, I deserve to be there. So there's no question about that. I was a miserable, failed human being. I deserved all that was coming. When I look objectively, I think, well, what did we want as a society from that experience? So Christmas then, it just, it just you know... We, we got Christmas, a Christmas lunch. We had Christmas lunch, yeah. Right. What does that look like? Are you all together or do you just get <laughs> slop on your tray well, and put back in yourself? Well, you get your tray, you go, and some prison officers make make an effort. Because don't forget, prison officers, they want to be their families. But they're, they're, they're stuck with the convicts. Some of them try and make an effort to make you feel a bit better because it's Christmas. Because Christmas is an amazing time. I, I didn't know before I went to prison just how amazing prisoners, you know, Christmas is but uh yeah some officers try and try and you know say happy christmas and they'd be supportive and Are there you, any carols being played well Wandsworth used to have music a, in there they used to have a a salvation army band i don't know if it's still there but they, they came on christmas day so they're playing in the background and it's sort of bittersweet because you sort of feel happy about christmas and then you feel really depressed about where you are for christmas you know but you know, the Christmas lunch you asked me about, sliced of turkey. I don't know if it was turkey. It was something, it, it, they called it turkey. Unidentifiable <laughs> yeah, piece of white, meat. White meat. Yeah. <laughs> this turkey. And you got a couple of sprouts, and a, you know, and, um, and a bit of stuffing. And you just, some, I mean, I've got to tell you, prisons do try, even then. Yeah. They try to make 
some sense that look this is Christmas even with all the cynicism and you've got prison officers that, that are angry because they why have I got to work with mm. you, you know, and you're all in it together right you're you all behind those basically walls are. but I tell you what the people that, the people that benefit the most are people that, with the right attitude so so I you know for me I was I didn't have a good attitude then you know my first Christmas I wasn't thinking oh god what a great opportunity I'm in prison for life for 99 years I wasn't thinking about that but I saw officers who were trying to make the best of the day that they had in jail. And they tried to make the best for the prisoners that were in there. So would you all have lunch together? There was no sitting together. I was 18 years in jail before I actually sat in a communal area to sit with other, mm. eat with other people. So were you were you sharing a cell or were you No, alone? no, I was uh, like most long-term prisoners then. You know, I'm talking about 1984, 85, 86, 87. We... You know, long-term prisoners got their own yeah. cell. And there was more room in prison. There was in more those room. Days. I mean, when I went to prison, there were I think there were 40, 44,000 people in jail. Now it's eighty. Now it's 80, 87,000 people across the UK. It's like 90, 92, 93,000. And so there's a lot. I mean, life has been banged up together. I find that really odd because the enmity that develops between prisoners over the years, you, you, you'd have to experience it to understand just just how awful that is. You know. You made an interesting point about actually your Christmases before you got into prison because your life was not a bed of roses by any stretch of the imagination. Your mother was killed in a car crash. You were separated from your baby sister and your father turned into a violent alcoholic of which you bore most of the brunt of from your book that you wrote, Redeemable. So I imagine that your Christmases weren't great beforehand, yet now you find yourself in a situation in prison so were they in some ways a little bit better than what you knew? That's a really good point. And thanks for, you know, bringing that up and stuff. I mean, there were issues, you know, how any of us become who we become is, is complicated. It's, it depends on so many variables. And I, I was dealt this hand, which was challenging. And you're right, there was no Christmas. I mean, my last Christmas I remember at home was mum and dad, sister, me, presents in front of the fire, you know, big blazing fire, and uh, my, my my parents must have bought my sister a little Bambi, a blow up Bambi thing. It was too close to the fire, and it burned and melted. And I remember me, and my si my little sister, she was only like uh, not even a year. And she was crying, I was crying, and and burned this fire out. That was the last Christmas I remember. And then after that, there was no Christmas really. We just we just drifted about, you know. But in jail, I sort of connected back to what Christmas is. Christmas is a a time for peace it's it'd be kind to each other you know even in jail you'd be amazed at how many people look forward to Christmas but a great many with respect hate Christmas because it's Christmas is the family time Christmas mm -hmm. is the time where we care about each other we're our friends our family we give each other gifts you know here's the here's the really hard thing at the moment because of the drug problem in our prisons the spice problem so many prisons now I've got the policy of if, if somebody writes to a prisoner, a loved one, a wife, or a girlfriend, a mother, or a child, the prisoner doesn't get the letter. They, they photocopy the letter or the card or the painting or the picture and they give it to the prisoner. I'm really thinking, Christ, if I was in jail, I wouldn't want that. I, would, I, I want my letter from my, the person that loves me, that cares about me. I want, the, I want to hold the paper that they, they held when they wrote their letter. I don't want to... You know, dodgy photo and the mm. photocopies. Some of them are terrible. So we get 
let us do inside time. And inside times, the internal newspaper written for, for people prisoners. in prison yeah. that, that I edit. Yeah. And the editor in chief, very proud to be that. We've got a great team that puts the paper together. But we get a lot of letters from prisoners who are really angry, upset, bitter, depressed about not getting their letters. They get a photocopy yeah. of a letter. Can you imagine? You see, here's what we do in our, our system. As a perpetrator, like I was, I have to demonstrate empathy to my victims, to society. But there's not a lot of empathy coming from the prison system towards prisoners. And if we want people to come out of prison, we want people to prison in, in prison to come out not motivated, they're not all going to do well, you know, but the, but the majority of people I met in prison have the desire to change. Now, they're not all going to make those changes, but we have to do our best to, you know, make sure that the mo as, as many as possible make the changes to be better, good people, mm -hmm. to live amongst us, good neighbours. But by doing this letter thing, I mean, I'm just dreading Christmas this year where, where people get Christmas cards from their four-year-old kid Mum's written a little message and they get a photocopy of that thing, you know. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, seriously, I don't care who, what they've done, who they it are. It takes the personal aspect it totally destroys away from it, it in a way. It did you, destroys it. Did you get letters? Your mother wasn't around any longer. Your my father, dad, was my, he still around? Did he visit? Just, yeah, did anyone visit at Christmas or Christmas? My dad visited, not, well, Christmas, no. Uh, my dad visited me for a few years and had a big fallout. You know, the, as I grew in jail, I could see that a lot of my dad's behavior when I was a kid was just outrageous. When you're a nipper, when you're a child, you, you take every, you absorb everything from the people who you know are in control of you, who, who are looking after you and nurturing you. And, and and I took a whole lot of negative stuff from my dad. But it wasn't until I was in jail and I got help to see how that the interaction in my formative years had impacted on, on, on my my character, my personality. And so me made a, a big fallout. He, he couldn't accept that anything he'd done was wrong. And I could see blatantly that his behavior towards me was outrageous, you know, mm. so I do this big fallout. But I mean, I used to, look, Christmas, sometimes you got officers who, you know, they'd hated being in, in, in prison on Christmas morning. So they'd get the tunnel out and say, hey, Merry Christmas campers. What, trying to lighten the mood and- No. Oh. <laughs> Okay, what were no, they trying to do then? They were trying to be funny. They were trying to, oh. you, oh, you bastards, I'm, I'm here. You're going to get some grief off me today. Oh, right. You know, and then you got other officers who were just went out of their way to make you feel, look, Christmas, you know, we're all human beings. I remember one, one interesting time I wrote about for the garden years ago when I, I looked at my cell window one Christmas morning and there's an officer. It was, it was all snowy. It was all icy. But it wasn't quite a white Christmas, but it was a bloody cold Christmas. And there's an officer all wrapped up in his cape and everything. And he was marching, he was patrolling this yard. And there's a, a, a guy up at his window, in his cell window. And, he, and I called this officer. I won't say his real name, but I called him Mr. Turnlock. I, I, used to have, I had a great gift for giving characters names, you know, in my writing. So I called him Mr. Turnlock. And he was, he, he was actually a great guy, a Scottish guy and uh, an old hand, you know. Anyway, he's marching up and down outside. And this kid up in his cell window, he shouts out, Mr. Turnlock. And he looked up. I'm watching out the cell window. He said, Merry Christmas, Mr. Turnlock. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, 
you have an Airbnb. Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Mr. Turnlock, shout your back. Hey, boy, Mer- Merry Christmas to you too. Mr. Turnlock, I hope your family are all right today. And I'm listening, thinking, is he going to say something nasty? And Mr. Turnlock stood up and he looked up and he went, Hey, friend, I hope your family are all right too. And it, it was really quite emotional. You know, even now thinking about it, I'm talking about 1999, I think it was. It reminded me when I wrote about it for The Guardian. It, of the, of the truce, the World War One truce, where where Germans and, and the Allies fought a football match, people laid down their arms, and just for that moment, these two people who had to be where they had to be, they had to be there. They shared a little bit of humanity, you know. What really goals in prison? I'll tell you this: is that every Christmas, it'll happen soon. The popular press start to print the menus of the prisons, the Christmas menus. The pensioners are starving. You know, here's, here's the thing that's, that started me writing. Because actually on that note, it's probably important to say that were you not the first prisoner ever in history to start writing for a British newspaper while serving time? Not writing for a British newspaper, but writing a regular column. Yes, right. yes. for the Guardian. We, we, we'd had prisoners writing before for, uh, you know... Right, you were the first I was the first regular, regular columnist. That was the first in the history of British journalism. Unbelievable. I never expected that, you know. I became the... The guy that could write a good letter in prison. That, that's how I started writing. I was, I was somebody, this prison's such a small world. People would come in and say, oh, are you the guy that write, writes letters? I was saying, yes. And so, you know, I wrote to girlfriends. I wrote to uh, wives and parole applications and, you know, complaints to the governor. Got a lot of vicarious pleasure writing complaints to the governor. And I, became, and I started writing groups and that sort of stuff. And... Um, I could see that in prison, including me, before jail, you know, communication was a massive problem. It's easy to have violence or confrontation. 
then actually say, excuse me, sir, we've got a altercation here. Can we resolve this peaceably? That prisoners don't speak like that. The, the lives that most people live in prison is very defensive. It's very it's atavistic almost. And uh, but I started writing letters and writing, being a writer. And then, you know, 15 years in, I got the chance to write for the Guardian. I got a new probation officer who came to see me. A guy called Richard Spence, an amazing guy. He said, "What are you doing here?" Well, by then. I had a little portfolio of writing. I thought, oh, I could have been a writer, you know. How many years into your sentence? 15 years in. 15 was, years yeah. in. But I, um, I've got this little portfolio of writing, and this guy says, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a, I do a bit of writing. Oh, he looks, my, ne my next door neighbor's a writer called Ronan Bennett. I'd read a couple of uh, Ronan's books. So I said, oh, great writer. He said, he said drop him my note, you know. So I, I dropped him my note. Six months later, Ronan writes back to me. I'm writing a film about prison. Can you help me? Yes. This famous writer comes to see me. We have a great friendship. And I didn't know then that Ronan was married to Georgina Henry, who was the deputy of The Guardian at the time. That has no real relevance other than Ronan and Alan Rusbridger, the editor of The Guardian, were friends. So they're having a drink one night, and Rusbridger says to uh, Ronan, we're thinking of having a convict write for the paper. What do you think? Ronan says, good idea. So, but we... Can they write these people? You know, so Ron says, "Well, I know somebody who can write." Because I helped him write this film, and with anyway. And generally speaking, I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? Because most people can't read or write, and the average reading age is of an eleven-year-old at the moment. Am I right? Below eleven-year-old. The average reading reading age for eighty percent of the people in prison at the moment is below what would you expect of an 11-year-old? You're talking about like a sort of level one. You yeah, know? but you were quite rare in that respect. Well, I, was, I wasn't I say I wasn't educated, but for some reason I could write. I could put words together in an eloquent, sort of attractive way. When I started writing, going back to the Christmas thing, I started writing to the newspapers. Most of us deserve to be here. We don't care about how you treat us, but tell the truth to the people about prison life. I'm not living in a holiday camp. I'm not eating steak and roast turkey for Christmas. I'm not having a great time in here. I'm doing the best I can. Tell the people the truth. And often I get letters back saying, oh, thanks for your letter, blah, blah, blah. blah. And eventually I got, a, I got a letter from Ruth Piketty, who used to be right for The Independent. Tell us about prison. That's how, it's, that's how the writing thing started. Okay. And talking about Christmas Day and what it means to, I guess, us on the outside, I'm going to ask you something that's uncomfortable, but how often... Did you think about the victims of your crime, the two people that you killed? Yeah, it's a difficult one. A difficult one. I think about them now every day. Every time I have a, an enjoyable experience, you know, in life, I think about the, the families. It's hard to think. I, I think about those people almost every day. There are days when, you know, it's been a long time, it's only 40 years, but I've struggled, really. I've really struggled. Um, as my life has developed and become quite meaningful and purposeful, it was easier in prison where I could compartmentalize. You know, I had, I had six, seven books. I was in a concrete box. I found a better part of me in jail, but I was limited, you know. I was limited to this limited experience of life. And I found a way to live in jail that was relatively peaceful. Yeah, I knew that I couldn't make amends. The psychologist who told me I was valuable and got me into education. She said to me, I owe it to my victims, as anybody does, you know, if you've hurt somebody, we, I owe it to my victims, do the best I can with the life I've got left. And that drove me like nothing else. So, so I achieved, I mean, I got myself a degree in prison, in history from, from like, no, you know, no education before 
prison or limited and then, and then I get a degree in history majoring in history I know about the classics and all that stuff and what I learned is I didn't mean to like achieve a degree and I didn't mean I meant to work hard and what you do is when you work hard you, things happen if you, if you put lots of effort into a, an activity there'll, there'll be some reward from that yeah and I guess this is a difficult part of the national debate isn't it because people would say how dare you get offered those opportunities exactly. inside I've struggled to get into university on the outside. What do I have to do? Kill people to get an education, kill people to get a degree. And I suppose there's a certain amount of sympathy with that point of view. But of course, it's so complex because what we have to ask ourselves is, well, what do we want to happen to people like you? Do we want people like you to serve 20 years of a life sentence, come out, be more angry and be even more likely to kill again? Or do we want you to come out having realised the error of your ways and to go on the straight and narrow? And I think that's the important issue that people have to grapple with themselves on an individual level, asking yourself, how do you want this person to be when they're out? Because the uncomfortable truth is, if you want someone to come out better and less violent, then you have to treat them in a certain way. And that's difficult for some people to accept. It's a challenge, look, to, for anybody, an individual, a community, a society, it's a challenge to help people who've hurt us. You walk out here today and somebody mugs you. Do you want to help that person? You know, do you want to, do you want to give them a leg up? No, you want to, you're angry. You're disgusted, you know. And that's the challenge for our society. But there, there's a, a third way of me getting out. Do you want me to get out and just fade away? live in a bedsit and make no contribution. You know, what is it you want from us? Our society talks about rehabilitation. There's an army of people who work in our prisons who want prisons to be meaningful and purposeful. I mean, an army of people, amazing teachers, psychologists, probation officers, some great prison officers, some amazing governors who want our prisons Mm. to be places of redemption, of rebirth. Okay, but our society is begrudging of the people who, who make a success. But I'll tell you this. However difficult our society makes our prisons, however crummy and debilitating, corrosive and uh, challenging, however however hard you make those places, some of us will make it. Some of us will make it. I made it. (laughs) I never never had a plan to make it. You made it, but I know you find it difficult. I do. Of course I do. I do because I, you know, I... I made it, and I used to think if I could just live, live long enough to experience one sunny day outside, that's all, 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 almost all that kept me going sometimes. And I got out to the sunniest, amazing August day in 2004, 20 years to the day I served. And I was, I was, I'm not going to lie to you, I was exhilarated at first. I was like walking on air. But then, of course, I think about my victims who will never see sunshine, two families who are still grieving because of me now. And then me, I've become a sort of a semi-public figure with my writing for the Guardian, celebrated Guardian columnist. What's I've struggled with that? Prison governor summed it up for me when when he showed me off once to uh, to the local deputy mayor that came in the prison, showing him around. He said, brought me to my cell, and this this governor had made it so difficult. No, no, he was completely adamant that I was never going to write for the Guardian or any other national newspaper. And then when, I, when the prison minister gave me permission, he brought the deputy mayor and he's coming to myself. I said, this is Owen James, writes for The Guardian. And I thought, you've been a hypocrite. But he wasn't a hypocrite. He was a good man who, who, was, who, was, who was trying to figure out what is my prison for? And when I challenged him later, he said, um, I said, that's not bloody showing me off. What was it all about? 
He said, the problem we have in a society, and I've quoted this many, many times, the problem we have in a society, we believe in rehabilitation for prisoners, but we're not sure how rehabilitated you want them to be. And I thought, how absurd is that? Mm. If you're going to let someone like me out of prison, make sure I'm rehabilitated to the nth degree. Don't take chances yeah. with the public, you know. I sometimes reflect on the word rehabilitation. I think it almost should become a banned term because it's just banded around. And it's uh, for me, it's become slightly toxic because actually, don't tell me you want to rehabilitate someone. Tell me what you want them to do. Tell me what it is we should do. I think you're right, rehabilitation. I never, 20 years in jail, I never once heard a conversation between prisoners on the yard, on the wing, in the gym. Hey, Joe, how's your rehabilitation going? <laughs> There's a great film called The Shawshank Redemption where Red, played sublimely by Morgan Freeman, goes in front of the parole board and they say, hey, he goes 20 years. You rehabilitated? Yes, sir. I'm rehabilitated. Oh, denied. 30 years. Rehabilitated yet? He said, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm rehabilitated. Yeah, denied. 40 years. He's had enough. I said, you rehabilitate? He said, rehabilitate. He said, listen, Sonny, that's a politician's word. It's a, it's a journalist's word. It's a bullshit word. Do I regret what I did all those years ago? I've regretted it every single day of my life. He said, but you, he said, you're trying to put me through this system. That sort of words to that effect. And, and it's a bit like that in our country. You know, we, we, it's a bit like generally, I think, mm. apart from Norway, where they have some progressive thoughts. The Norwegian people don't like murderers, rapists, pedophiles, burglars, muggers. They don't like those people, but they tolerate a system that attends to the needs, to the dignity of the people they have in captivity to get them out less likely to commit more crime. They owe that to the victims of the perpetrators and to future potential victims. We don't seem to have that philosophy. I don't know why. Norway and Scandinavia have got the lowest reoffending rates in Europe. We've got amongst the highest. Why can't we get our heads around the fact that we, we, we have to use our prisons more effectively, not just at Christmas, but at Easter and uh, throughout the summer? And, and, and autumn and winter and throughout. arguably every single day every single every single day now i don't know why i'm hung up on this but do the landings and do the wings get decorated i mean some prisoners you know they, they regardless of how difficult or how harsh the environment is they will fabricate a christmas tree out of something <laughs> and then you'll get some people who you know get the, the governor say right we're gonna have this is christmas we're having a tree they have a tree at the end of the landing with some decorations just to remind everybody yeah come on look we're all we're, we're all human beings do all the baubles have to get like a risk assessment before they're hung on the tree <laughs> knowing how hard it is to get Listen, anything you're asking you're asking me that I, I've, I've not look i've not been in, i've not been a prisoner for 14 years but i've been i've been in prisons over the years and i've seen some great things i've been i've seen some really innovative compassionate caring initiatives by governors and prison officers to try and make the, the the experience of being in captivity for the people that they're in charge of more Christmas friendly. But bear in mind, look, if you just see wildfires in California, where a whole town's been wiped out, at the moment there's 58 people dead, confirmed, and there's like over 100 missing. What about their Christmas? So we've got to keep it in perspective when it comes to our prisons. Our prisons are difficult and challenging places to be. And Christmas, there's people outside here 
just down the street here. I bet you anything, there's people here who think dreading Christmas. Oh my God, what about Christmas dinner? What about my in-laws, kids, cooking? I'm not speaking from a personal I was point of view. Say, I have sure, very nice in-laws. I'm sure your in-laws And very fantastic. nice children. <laughs> It's the cooking I struggle with. Wherever you are in life, Christmas morning, it's a really powerful place to be. Some people are really distraught. Some people are happy. I'm going to tell you this. When I was in jail, I learned to be happy at Christmas. I used to love Christmas songs. When, when there's a mince pie on, on, on the menu, and I, it's Christmas. And I, because bear in mind, before before prison, I didn't really experience Christmas. I mean, not since Bambi died. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, I never. There was no Christmas. I, I used to sleep rough at Christmas. I used to sleep on the streets. You were sleeping rough by the age of eleven. Yeah, I was. But, yeah, but I wasn't always sleeping rough. But when I was a kid, when I was teenagers, God, I remember the time sleeping. I used, to, I used to look at old, you know, windows where there was like colours and decorations and happy people and then the music. And I said, God. How the hell do you get to be like that, to where you live in a place where everybody's happy? But very, what I've learned through my you know, life experience and prison and everything is that very few people have these happy, ecstatic lives. Everybody's got issues, everybody's got problems. What we try to do at Christmas is try to make the best of what we have at Christmas. And I've got to tell you this, people in prison mostly try to do the same. They're not all wondering about miserable and you know, long face. They they try to do the best they can. I do worry this year about the photocopy and the Christmas cards and the photographs from the kids. Mm. I think that's going to be a real struggle for people in jail. And finally, can you tell me how you're going to be spending Christmas this year and who you'll be holding in your thoughts? So I've got some family and uh, I, I think about them. I, I try not to think too, too much about them because there's so much unresolved in my life that, that I... I I can't always, I can't commit completely to my, how emotionally I feel about the people that I care about. But I'm, I'm married to a very amazing lady and we're going to have a quiet, gentle Christmas. Um, I think we're going to go out for lunch somewhere this year because she's fed up cooking. I always say, I want everything. I want turkey, I want rice buds. I want... And she gets fed up because it's just me and her. <laughs> We've got a big table of stuff because I want, I want to, I, want, I, I, I love and I love Christmas so much. Um, but it is bittersweet. You know, I, my life is blessed and cursed at the same time. Um, and what I've learned to do is n not focus on the cursed and try and enjoy the blessed and um, you know do the best I can till it's all over because we give people a second chance in this country and for, for people who've done the worst like me it's, it, it, second chance it's a, it's, a, it's a challenging second chance but I'm going to try and do my best I won't forget anybody I've ever hurt no I mean I've got a lot of victims in my life you know from the age of 11 my first conviction to, to the families that are grieving because of me uh, I don't want you to think that I ever don't think about those people, but I've got to somehow, do you want me to live or shall I crawl away in a hole and rot? I think I owe my society the drive to live and do the best I can. And I'm sorry that if that hurts anybody, I've got to try and live and do the best I can. I owe it to my victims. Well, Owen, I hope you have a very happy Christmas this year. A quiet really and gentle Christmas. Kind. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk.
www.thepodcast.co.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.